Welcome back to The Medical Director's Always Right. We are following up with Narcan Part 2 with Dr. Josh Stilley, and we will get right to it. Here we go. Okay, so finally the dreaded vomiting scenario. That's what most of us associate with slamming 2 milligrams of Narcan on somebody as they pop up swinging and puking. Um, how do we prevent it? And if we are unsuccessful in preventing, uh, how do we treat it? So same things as I've said before, trying to give the appropriate dose of Narcan, start small, titrate up. One of the ways we can start small is either diluting out the Narcan dose you have. So two milligrams, put it in a 10 cc vial, dilute that out, and then just slowly titrate that in. So you're only given a little bit at a time. If you have two milligrams and 10 cc's of saline, so you're given uh, uh, one milligram um, per five mLs, give about 0.1 ml every uh, 30 seconds or so. So you're given a pretty small dose over time. That seems to be helpful to kind of titrate. A minute to three to five minutes um, is what it takes for Narcan to kind of hit full effect. So you're gonna start seeing some effect, hopefully before you give the full two milligrams. So you can give a smaller dose over a, um, a short but decent period of time. And as soon as they start having an effect, stopping. The effects I go for with Narcan administration are supporting their own ventilation so that they don't need as much ventilatory support and inappropriate blood pressure with good signs of perfusion. I don't search for the awake alert GCS-15 patient. Uh, that's not my goal with Narcan administration. My goal with Narcan administration is the, yeah, they look pretty much alive, close enough to count anyway. Uh, so that actually reminds me of a question uh, somebody brought up last week. Uh, what are the indications for a Narcan drip? So a Narcan drip would be given for the patient that has a long-acting opioid exposure um, overdose that needs uh, Narcan over a long period of time. That would be more on the cycle of like methadone overdose, very, very long-acting opioid. Most of the opioids that we encounter pre-hospital are not, at least in this area, uh, our heroin, our fentanyl, uh, our Percocet, oxycodone, morphine, and all of the other names associated with those entities. One dose of Narcan is actually probably most part uh, enough to get patients through their initial overdose. Um, maybe need a second dose for some patients, but for the most part, you give one, they're gonna be able to support their oxygenation, ventilation, perfusion adequately after that first dose of Narcan. Uh, so the last uh, complication that I thought we'd address is pulmonary edema. So pulmonary edema is one of my favorite things to address when talking about administration of Narcan, um, partly because it's statistically uncommon, despite what we might think, um, but also partly because its origin is kind of variable. It's kind of that uh, unknown quantity. Is it from this or is it from that? Uh, so this leads me to think that the definitive treatment uh, would be more reliant on that cause. Would I be right? Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that because it's so multifactorial. And then would you say that uh, pre-existing conditions and comorbidities are a big player on Narcan-induced pulmonary edema? Absolutely. So I want to frame this uh, in a case for you guys. <clears throat> so had a uh, narcotic of unknown origin overdose patient sitting in a car, uh, and she was about 60, so not our typical user. So once we're about 60, uh, it's pretty likely that we may have developed some comorbidities. Uh, so if we can manage that patient in another way, that might be one where we exercise a little bit of caution. They're not a young person. So if they have that surge in blood pressure, surge in heart rate, surge in uh, respiratory effort, uh, that might not be the best thing for them. So come to find out this lady also had COPD and heart failure uh, and asthma 
So would it really be in her benefit to have a surge in blood pressure? I think that's a patient that we very easily could have seen pulmonary edema in had we uh, slammed two milligrams of Narcan on her right off the bat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, some of that comes into play with, you know, did the initial opioid dose itself lead to some of that? Because there is potential for um, uh, opioids with poor cardiac function in uh, putting patients into heart failure with the opioid uh, itself. That could play a role in the development of pulmonary edema. So, uh, and I also always say that the patient self-selected for their opioid overdose 95% of the time. So, you know, it's not our fault that they're in the opioid dose, uh, opiate overdose, but we do have to appropriately, appropriately treat them afterwards. Um, so going back to the original podcast that Chris did, he brought up some arguments that we've long made to keep Narcan in the hands of healthcare providers instead of lay people. So I'm actually talking about lay people, uh, not even our first responders. So Chris largely defeated the majority of his own arguments, uh, but I did want to touch back on those arguments to get a wider point of view. So Narcan may have a shorter half-life than the opiate, and we frequently use this argument to encourage patients to go to the hospital that are otherwise refusing transport. Now, I think we have the luxury of doing this uh, in my system, but in more urban areas, this becomes problematic. Uh, we'll discuss this more when we get to the Narcan alternative, but these densely populated regions uh, can't handle the volume of patients that EMS is administering Narcan to, let alone the number of patients that lay people are administering Narcan to. So what do you think about this, Dr. Stilley? What do you think about patients receiving Narcan and then not uh, presenting to the ED? So uh, that actually was the subject of a paper uh, in the uh, NAMSP journal uh, a few years ago, uh, or actually last year, I think it was. Um, so this looked at patients who got Narcan by EMS and then refused care afterwards. And what they found is that the patients that were able to have a coherent uh, decision uh, with uh, appropriate appropriate decision-making capacity actually had a very low rate of zero of uh, fatality afterwards. So it doesn't mean that uh, they didn't call 911 or show up to the hospital later or have overdose symptoms later, but none of them actually uh, passed away in this study. So um, same thing applies. If you have a patient in front of you that is refusing care, um, that is capable of making a, a medical decision uh, and has capacity to make that decision, we are not able as healthcare providers to override their decision-making capacity at that point. So we don't have the legal authority, um, based on my opinion, this paper and just what the law would say of being able to override that. Now, I think we should still continue to um, encourage patients to uh, go to the emergency department for observation because they still have a pretty decent chance of apnea. They have a chance of uh, withdrawal symptoms symptoms or rebound into uh, hypoxia or vomiting or something like that. So I think it's still reasonable to observe these patients in the emergency department. But same thing happens in the ER. If they say, uh, I'm leaving, I'm walking out, and they get up and walk out, I'm not going to hold them against their will. And I think that's the appropriate application of what we know right now. Just a reminder here, if that patient is refusing care, please make sure to take their IV out before you let them run away. Even if you have to run after them, most of them will eventually stop and allow you to take the IV out. If they're running naked, then you can argue that they don't have decision-making capacity, which has been an issue. So the same thing would apply, though, um, in, you know... This does get into a little bit of a gray zone. If we give Narcan, the patient says, I don't want to go to the hospital. You know, as providers, I think it's still in the best interest of the patient to get observed for a longer period of time. So we definitely shouldn't uh, be encouraging patients not to go to the hospital uh, when this occurs, though. 
uh, does call the question the should we be encouraging everybody to call 911 every time they uh, give Narcan from the lay people? And we don't have the data to say what uh, what should happen in that case. But if they do call, uh, then it's uh, the same responsibilities that we have. Um, as far as the arguments of Narcan being a false sense of security, uh, drug users being alone when they overdose, not calling 911 if they have Narcan, and not saving lives, as Chris brought up originally, the data overwhelmingly shows that opiate abusers will abuse no matter what is at their disposal, and that Narcan in the hands of lay people has certainly saved a lot more lives than it has killed. But let's break into the Narcan alternative. So Dr. Silly, I would say you've made some waves uh, with a couple statements you've made about Narcan usage, uh, but I think it brings us back to the root of what all of these patients are dying from, respiratory depression. So would you walk us through your first steps of airway management in these patients? Sure. So my first step is uh, first assessment of the airway. If they've vomited already, they need suctioning. You have to get the contents out of the airway. If not, um, then bag mass ventilation and assessing, are you getting good air movement? Uh, is there tongue occluding flow? Uh, do they have swelling or edema somewhere? Um, so if you can mass ventilate with good chest rise and fall, you're doing pretty much 90% of the work that the patient's going to need at that point for supportive care. Um, these patients, um, not all of them that will, uh, will need uh, invasive airway right away. I think it's appropriate to continue um, bag mass ventilation while we're continuing on with our primary assessment intervention, such as uh, IV access or IN administration of Narcan if we have a pretty good idea that's what's occurring, um, IV fluid and stuff like that. Once we get through uh, first round of care, including probably that first round of Narcan, then assess how's the airway doing. Do we need to have further control of that airway with um, more aggressive maneuvers? Do we need RSI? Do we need to put a king in or can we just intubate outright? I think that's an appropriate uh, decision uh, point uh, then. And if you have a patient, you gave Narcan a good dose and nothing happened and you still need our supporting ventilations at that point, I think that's an appropriate patient to intubate. Uh, chances are then it's either an opioid overdose uh, that has an agent that's stronger than the Narcan dose you gave uh, or a mixed overdose. Uh, benzodiazepines would be something that would be combined a lot that uh, would come into play. When you find that vomit in the airway, um, does that up your likelihood of intubating that patient due to aspiration risk? It, it does, because uh, if they vomit once, they're likely to vomit again. I've had patients vomit before Narcan. I've had patients vomit after Narcan. But um, more or less, if they're actively vomiting, that, that's not a controlled airway at that point. One, uh, one episode of vomiting, I let it go. Two episodes of vomiting, you're probably going to get a tube. It's like seizures. Yeah, like seizures. I do the same thing with like the PCARN rule for kids with head trauma. Uh, one episode of vomiting, you're not getting a CT. Two, and now you're getting a CT. Um, do you think it matters how long these patients have been down? on whether we uh, dose Narcan or uh, progress to advanced uh, airway management? Not really. A lot of our downtimes are unknown, so you don't have a good idea of uh, when this occurred. Uh, and a lot of our patients may have vague ideas, but I would, I would do the same maneuvers. I would do airway control first with bag mass ventilation, progress through my primary survey, try some Narcan at a small dose to a larger dose, um, you know, slowly. Um, and then see what happened, and at that point make the decision. It's more dependent on the patient, uh, the amount of overdose, the co-ingestants, how they respond, um, the, uh, and risk factors, then what, what time the overdose occurred. Because again, um, the FDA does not control illegal substances, so you never know what's been mixed into the heroin 
and heroin's in quotes. Um, do you think we can predict if that patient has a brain injury? So that's been kind of a concern of mine is if you've got a patient that's been down and hypoxic and potentially suffering brain damage, we give them Narcan and then they come back with this anoxic brain injury. Do you think there's a way we can kind of predict which ones would be susceptible to that? So my politically incorrect response is these patients to me are cockroaches. They seem to do very well with big insults repeatedly. Even if it's their first time, uh, we have a very bad uh, track record of knowing who's going to do what. Even in the ER for a couple of hours, I have a bad uh, um, uh, uh, track record of trying to decide who's going to do well, who's not. It's really not the right time frame. It's not the right scenario. People can have a little bit of anoxia in the brain and recover fully. Some people um, may have more than we expect. A lot of times the story is chaotic on scene, so we don't actually have the full story, and that may come into play later. And the body is an interesting thing. Sometimes it can do very, very, very well with horrible amounts of injury and insult. Sometimes a little bit throws it over the edge and it's done. So it's really hard to tell on scene and in the ER who's going to do how well. Um, and really... Um, the toxicologists would say we need about five half-lives of the drug to say that it's cleared enough to be able to evaluate whether the drug is there or not. So who knows that uh, what we're seeing on scene, is it still the acute overdose that we're seeing or is it anoxia that we're seeing? Really need about five half-lives of the drug to be able to say for sure what's happening. That's a day or two. So we're not staying on scene a day or two before we make that decision. But I mean, these are all areas that we'd just love to vacation in for a little while, right? Yeah, yeah. The good parts of town that we just want to hang out in for a while. I guess we could drag these people to our uh, our bases and just watch them for a little bit. That'd be reasonable. Just have a, a couch full of... Couch full of friends. All right. Well, I hope you guys are more prepared in managing your opiate overdose patients and that you are also more prepared to educate our fellow first responders. Uh, Dr. Stilly, did you want to say anything more on the topic before we head out? Yeah, so so some of you may be surprised. I'm actually a big fan of the um, um, lay people having Narcan. I think that's a fantastic program. Get it in the hands of the people that don't have other tools in order to, to help the patients with opiate overdoses. However, for our care providers, I think we should have careful use of Narcan and uh, control the airway first, I think, is our primary go-to. So some of you might be surprised. Tony's given me a look of surprise that I trend in that direction. But I, I am all for lay people Narcan. I don't really care for Narcan myself, so I have other tools. What do you think about Amazon drones dropping off Narcan when they call 911? Uh, if we could get it in a dart form, so the drone shows up, shoots a dart, hits the patient, flies off, so we have IM administration... I think that'd be fine. Something for uh, Jeff Bezos to look through, I guess. Uh, might be a interesting opportunity for him to get some government funding. Well, you can catch all the show notes for this episode at cbcemp.proboards.com. Uh, post some feedback. We can get a discussion fired up uh, right there. Also, check out the Mendeley app uh, for any articles that we've discussed in the show. You can get them right to your phone or your computer. You can subscribe to The Medical Director is Always Right by searching for CBC EMP on any podcast player, including iTunes and SoundCloud. Leave us a review while you're there. This was Tony Held and Dr. Josh Stilley with The Medical Director is Always Right for Columbia and Boone County Emergency Medical Professionals. We'll catch you again soon.